members. And uh, they had some uh, nice comments. And they also asked uh, uh, Jay Merkel to uh, please, as part of the, uh, the, the D as the DFO, designated uh, federal officer, please consider FPV and uh, hobbyists to be added to the DAC. As, uh, as we've talked about, there is currently no uh, recreational or FPV representation on the DAC, and it's uh, 35 uh, seats. Um, so some of the things that were, were talked about to me that were uh, most interesting was, was the feedback uh, from the FAA on two of the uh, uh, tasking groups. One was, uh, and I'll go over this because this is sort of like uh, paint drying, but it's uh, <laughs> was uh, the BVLOS responses as well as the um, safety culture uh, responses. On the BVLOS, I was talking uh, a little earlier this evening, and it if you don't understand the, the crazy code names, uh, it's a little hard to make sense of what's going on. And so one of the fellas, and it was on a slide, said, you know, we're really excited that the uh, we're still able to provide 44807 uh, uh, exemption, exemptions, and that's a great thing for this agency. What yeah, I would say very, very few people that were watching had any idea what that is, including me. So part, <laughs> part 107 flyers will still be able to get uh, beyond visual line of sight uh, wa uh, waivers. Then the next line was, and then we'd like to phase over to airworthy aircraft, so type certification, etc. So I've been saying for about a year that the line is going to be drawn between line of vision, you know, local or line of sight, and beyond visual line of sight, and that's it. Just got repeated again and again and again today on the responses. So that was one. Airworthiness and type certification will be required for beyond visual line of sight. Uh, then they also talked about um, uh, DAA, another abbreviation, so detect and avoid. And they talked about ACAS uh, and uh, XSU. Um, over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about that as an alternative to a capability for uh, detect and avoid, a technology that, that really could work. You know, we need something else in addition to remote ID when you're flying beyond visual line of sight. Um, and then uh, the spectrum discussion, uh, I led that one. And uh, it was a pretty scathing commentary on the progress of the FAA to date. And so it was uh, um, sensitive. And it was uh, happily reasonably well received. So it appears that it helped uh, get things going. And there was a significant surprise in there where it said that the FAA is considering cellular operations for low altitude. So that flies directly uh, against FCC and congressional uh, uh, mandates that say you have to have protected uh, spectrum for C2. So that was, that was significant. Um, safety culture comments. Um, Lots of uh, uh, kumbaya, uh, great job, uh, you know, back slapping, fair amount going on under the uh, under the covers on that one. So um, we had about sixty people across the industry working on that, um, and so Alex was involved in that. I was involved in that one. I was also led back on the BV LOS. I led a sub team there. Um, so the safety culture, a lot of work with respect to, uh, hey, we'd like to come up with a self-assessment for safety. This was uh, something, instead of having 
uh, it come down from on top, couldn't we do a say, you know something simple like a self-assessment on uh, on safety? The FAA's response to that, along with a couple other times, and this is the first time I've seen it, was they turned it right around and said, "Great idea! Why don't you guys in industry take care of that?" So okay, <laughs> that's uh, you know it, there are there are tons of these uh, risk assessments out there for manned aviation. This is something we can do and keep it uh, consistent and uh, and useful. So that was interesting. In addition, uh, we talked, we made recommendations uh, in that flight safety about, you know, we really should utilize the FAA safety team. This is a uh, part volunteer, part FAA people across the country. They're drone pros. One of our members is currently a drone pro. Alex, <laughs> thank you. Uh, this is something I need to sign up for. And it's a good, it's a good process and a good program. And uh, the FAA said, we would like you who are stakeholders in this effort to promote the use of the safety team in the one of the points that we made to the FAA when we made this presentation is there were about 160,000 uh, 170,000 uh, total users of the FAA safety team and about 60,000 were member or had signed up as uh, part 107 so room room to go so let me get that back. Let me get that straight. We have a we had at the time a total of 177,000 Part 107 users. Of those, only 57,000 were taking advantage of the uh, FAA safety team. That makes more sense. Um, and so, work to be done to get let people know, hey, this program for education exists because a lot of what we talked about with with safety was, you know, let's just make the people more aware. Uh, then there was the uh, low altitude. Um, uh, uh, that was an interim report today. Next, uh, DAC will come back with a uh, full set of recommendations on that one. Uh, Alex, around classes, is uh, participating in that. I've also, I'm participating in all three subgroups and doing a project manager role on one of the subgroups. So very much involved in that one. So it was also, while this is uh, a, a bit, uh, stuffy and bureaucratic. Manager role on one of the sub. Someone came on and uh, had a, a mic open. Thanks for muting that. Um, it is. This was the most, the outgoing and the most questions and the most participative uh, DAC I have uh, been in. As uh, as you may know, the FAA uh, Drone Advisory Committee is an official FACA, a federal. Uh, advisory uh, committee. So lots of formality is required for it. And if you're not a member, you cannot uh, ask a question. However, we've now got a, a bunch of new uh, DAC members and they're uh, energetic and they are um, asking questions. They and were so not shy to uh, ask some questions. That was great. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> or make that statements, not necessarily even just questions. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there was a little bit of uh, uh, self, uh, you know, self plugging uh, for their own companies, which also the chair of the DAC, uh, this was his uh, last, uh, Michael Chasen will be uh, leaving and uh, he will be replaced with a yet to, uh, to be a player to be named. So we yeah. don't know who uh, his replacement is. He was um, not shy to promote where he is headed. Yes. And uh, <laughs> the, the person who really did a ton of work while he was uh, the CEO is Diana Cooper. So Diana is still, uh, she is now in an urban um, air mobility uh, capacity and job. 
great, great person, great uh, industry leader, and she did a, a huge amount of work for the um, uh, for the DAC. And uh, we look forward to uh, seeing who uh, Michael Jason's replacement is. Um, Alex, any comments uh, in addition to what uh, those points? Uh, sure. Though one thing with that first part discussing tasking group six and the BV loss, there was some comment on BV loss in shield operations type scenarios and stuff like that without involving certain equipment for detect and avoid, I believe, or some other of the stuff for watching for aircraft and all. So there was some comment on that, which was interesting. Other than that, I think you covered it all. Okay, yeah, and so what came up was um, shielded operations, and Kenji Sukahara thanked the FAA for um, putting out an ASSURE, all caps, uh, it's a, it's a, a grant program. They put out $932,000 across five schools. The lead school is the University of North Dakota, and this is a grant to investigate the veracity or the efficacy of uh, uh, shielded operations. So we recommended shielded operations be included in one of these tasking groups. Uh, that was the facility maps uh, tasking group. We presented that in, was that October um, last year? And they were, uh, the FAA was silent on that one topic. And so a couple of weeks ago, they came out and said, oh, we've got, we're going to respond to this with a grant. That's great. So that means they're considering it. In addition, uh, a, a similar uh, but different capability, notify and fly. The idea of being able to, instead of having remote ID, I'm able to uh, take out my phone. Uh, I'm in un uncontrolled airspace. I have a Lance-like application. I figure out, all right, figure out where I am. This is where I'm going to fly. Request an approval, and that launches uh, a capability to fly within a uh, three-dimensional volume over a set period of time, and no RID required. That's something that we're pushing, and we are uh, Vic Moss, Kenji Sugihara. I'm pushing it, and a couple of the other DAC members are pushing this. So. That also will come up and has come up in the uh, low altitude work. And I'm sure and you, you, saw, you saw that on one slide. I'm sure if uh, Bruce Simpson were here, he'd say, well, you don't need to spend money on a study for this. Just ask New Zealand how shielded operations is going <laughs> and it's solved. Yes, yes. <laughs> and we, we did cite the, the fact that New Zealand, in, in, back in October, we pointed to right. New Zealand as, as a yeah. precedent uh, geography and country that has put this in place effective and gotten uh, good results uh, from its uh, implementation. I think every chance that we've had, we've tried to insert shielded operations into just about everything, whether it was one of the tasking groups or several of the tasking groups, I think we've mentioned it in, as well as our response to remote ID um, and a couple other, uh, you know, silly slide ins because it's important. And I think that the FAA is starting to recognize that it's important. And as I mean, obviously we're spending money uh, to several different universities uh, to research this stuff. And um, so, you know, I, I can't imagine that the information coming out of these studies is gonna be anything but favorable for the community uh, because it's a really simple process. If a plane is flying lower than the highest object built up from the ground, you've got another problem. <laughs> so 
I mean, plain and simple, the drone is not the problem. Uh, so, um, I wonder if we could also get the FAA to look into Canada's regulations on sub 250, which are basically, you know, don't endanger any people or property and you're good to go. Yeah, we've brought that up a, a number of times, and it's uh, uh, in addition to uh, requesting uh, a, a change to the 250 gram uh, threshold to something higher. Right, and, like we put uh, a thousand oh, oh. grams in our uh, recommendation for remote ID, right? Yeah, but both of those comments have not been uh, met with uh, welcome uh, words, but we'll continue to push it. All right. Yeah, TextJet, right. I think the 250 grams comes from a 2000, oh gosh, what was it, 14, 15 uh, ARC meeting, and there's some documentation out there as to why they chose that. Doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense, but that's their justification is out there, kind of. Right. When figures presented unchallenged to executives of the business, they become law. That's one of those uh, <laughs> corporate doctrines, and that's, uh, you know, 250 was picked up by ICAO, picked up by Canada, and uh, yeah, not a lot of uh, not a lot of science behind it. Like 80% of statistics are made up on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> Including that one. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. All right. So uh, good information coming out of today. Um, all right. So second to that, and I'm going to see, tell me if this works. Let me, I'm going to test this real quick because this might be a different, and I will post these links as I go, but let me see if this You're going to try to share your screen? I am. We're getting really right. fancy today. I know, right? So... Uh, I don't know if that's I showing. I'm not if you can... seeing anything but our video so far. It's showing. You just have to click on it. Sort of. It's showing now. <laughs> um, okay. I see it. It did work. Maybe nice. I have to change. Have to Sorry, I'm it. trying to keep you on your toes here. Yeah, change you click my on view. That where it says watch stream and just click on that little window, that thumbnail. It'll pop up. Wow. Oh. I'm impressed, Josh. <laughs> Click on watch stream. I do not see a button for watching stream. Okay, right. I, uh, I go over here to Cujo and click on it. Now I've got it up. Okay. Can we see it on the... Oh, there we go. Perfect. Okay, so I see it coming up on YouTube over here. Uh, sorry, just trying to keep everything in track here. So... Um... FAA seeks trust administrators for drone pilot tests. So this is the uh, big news coming out about the um, recreational tests that um, uh, all drone pilots who fly recreationally will have to participate in. Uh, so they are looking for test administrators. Uh, we've talked about this before, um, and we were involved in the original uh uh, kind of discussion with the FAA uh, centered around the tests, and we've been expecting this news for a long time. Yeah, I think um, Dave and I were in a meeting in January. Was that 2020 or was it 2020? Long... January yeah. 14th, yeah, a little over 20, a year ago. 2020. Yep. Yep. And so the uh, FAA will designate uh, qualified third parties to administer the test and make it accessible to all recreational uh, drone flyers. Entities involved with recreational pilots, such as educational institutions, manufacturers, and aeromodeling organizations, are encouraged to apply. 
Um, so as of right now, we are applying uh, to be one of those uh, qualified third parties to administer that test. Um, we will see kind of how it uh, shakes out in terms of the requirements and cost, if any. Uh, we're hoping it's going to be uh, free, if not uh, very low cost. Um, Trust will provide recreational drone flyers with information on best practices and educational resources to ensure safe drone operations. So the test was developed with input from the drone community in response to requirements included in the FAA Reauthorization Act of 2018 that required development of a test to demonstrate a recreational flyer's understanding of aeronautical safety knowledge and rules for operating unmanned aircraft. So uh, with that, let's see, I can go. Um, with that, uh, we'll uh, basically need to be a uh, an additional kind of structure behind just about everybody who sells a drone um, or drone parts or anything like that, I would imagine. Um, so in terms of like if you're going to go out and buy, you know, a DJI uh, Phantom or something like that, you know, possibly included on a card in there or in the instructions that you need to go to one of these participating uh, third-party sites and take that test. Well, I wouldn't be totally uh, surprised if DJI had it built into their their apps on their phones that you would have to take the test well, before you could fly. Well, I, and I think there's already something like that on there uh, in terms of when you first uh, download the, the apps. I think there's a couple notifications that let you know, hey, you can do this, you can do that, you you know, you have to click through to agree to all these uh, kind of rules and regulations before it'll kick you into the app. But um, they might just enhance that experience, I would imagine. But, uh, you know, there there will be, you know, other um, retailers and manufacturers that will, you know, maybe not have that excellent uh, connectivity that DJI mm -hmm. has and immersion that DJI has that will need to inform their customers that that's a requirement. Um, so from everything that we understand so far, Dan, you want to kind of go into what we're, you know, kind of understanding about how the test would be structured and that kind of thing. Yeah, I can talk about it just briefly, um, just mm -hmm. from the technical side of things, they're requiring it to be a SCORM compliant learning management system. So if any of you have taken, uh, like high school or college classes recently, you've maybe used something like Canvas or Moodle or Design to Learn or Blackboard. I think all of those learning management systems can take these SCORM files and create a quiz or test out of them. And then once you pass the test, it's supposed to give you a certificate. You are supposed to print or save that certificate somehow. And then the test administrator deletes basically every all the information they have about you, except for a like a serial number that somebody passed this test. That serial number is passed on to the FAA. And at some point, I think they use that uh, to verify people if they, they need to. Um, so it should be relatively simple for anybody who's uh, run a learning management system before to make this work. Um, but I am curious to know what uh, everybody who's listening to this, what their thoughts are on the FPV Freedom Coalition being one of the administrators. Um, is there anything we're not thinking about that we should be? Um, is there any downsides to us doing this? Do you see it as a negative in any way? Things like that. All right. Um, 
Any questions or comments on the test on the recreational exam? And like oh, what TextJet was saying, yes, it's supposed to be free for anybody taking the test. Um, the people administering it can find ways to put advertising around it. They can't add their own questions before or during the test, but they can ask the FAA to add information at the end of the test. Um, Dan, is it stated in the write-up that it's supposed to be free? It is. Is that okay? Perfect. It, it says right that, so. on the the uh, document. Let's see. I can search for that's the word. Click. That's an interesting. Cost. Yeah, I got that's it. An interesting, that's an interesting structure. And yeah, we all agreed to willingly do that. But and and I know it says also says the FAA will not provide any funds to test administrators. So it's definitely right. They're yeah. not paying yeah. anything. Yeah, this is an interesting industry relations uh, problem, but we won't go into that. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I... The uh, answer key. <laughs> I'm sure there will be an answer key online within about an hour of the first person taking a test. Well, and here's the... We, yeah, we don't have to really worry about an answer key because this, this test is so simple and it, it won't really let you escape until you figure out the right answer. And then you're done. And then you only have to take it once in your lifetime. And John Solo had a question, which... I know we've uh, gone over this, and I just don't remember the answer, which was, if I already have my Part 107, do I need to take this um, recreational exam? I don't know the answer, but we'll, we'll I would an say, that one. I, I would say probably, if you're going to fly recreationally, it's probably just a good idea to have it. And, and like Dave was saying, this is going to be a very simple test. It's not going to be, you know... <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be like Part 107, 107 where you need to no. know the flight patterns of airplanes landing on a runway and all that stuff so it's designed to be simple it's designed to basically not let you fail it's there to provide information not make you sit there and redo it 50 times until you get it right so um i wouldn't stress about it um you know yeah. i don't think it's going to be you know the end all be all of anything i think it's going to be you know maybe 10, 15 minutes of your time, and then you move on with your life and never have to worry about it again. Right. Uh, I, so, I believe they said multiple times that really the goal is to use it as a education, education tool for people. Exactly. Right. But because, and so if you ask the question, well, why isn't it simply an education module? It's the answer to that is because it was mandated by Congress to the FAA to create an exam. So that's what they've done. So... They, you know, they, they're they're trying to the FAA's trying to lean toward us and help us out. So if there's no monetary value around test administration and test administrator or the person taking the educational course or whatever or the test or whatever it is, then why aren't we? Why don't they just make it a FAA.safety.gov type train uh, type thing? Because I so think they paper. want to have uh, basically tracking ability of who's taken it, um, the ability to supply, uh, you know, basically certificates that will be required if it'll be one. Of, it's one of the required documents that you'd have to have on you if you, you know, yeah. are out flying so, and a law and enforcement um, official requests it. I think there's a time gives you gives you a certificate for everything you do. Number one, and they and you have to have an account with the FACFD.gov so they can easily track track you that way too i think the faa would... doesn't want to spend the money on it but i also yeah. think there's a small hint in the application process 
where it talks about when you're applying, you tell the FAA what you think your reach of you running the test is. Mm -hmm. So I think they're trying to say, hey, if someone like the AMA does this, they've got a much bigger reach. They're going to get more people to fill this out than if the mm -hmm. FAA just does it on their own. So they're looking for groups and organizations who can get out there and reach people and try to convince them to actually take the test. Yeah, I mean, if your favorite organization, whether that be us, the AMA, uh, or any other, or I mean, even even like DRL or um, uh, GetFPV or RDQ or whoever, if they you know have a bigger reach, they can. I mean, they can reach more people collectively than a boring email from the FAA that most people are just going to either delete or ignore. And I mean, it still leaves the door open for people like DJI to incorporate it into their app apps on their cell on their phones and their controllers mm -hmm. and whatnot absolutely but, or or for us to say hey you know there are, take a look at the the rest of the fbvfc website there's mm -hmm. more information there there are resources on uh, additional safety education also uh, uh references to uh, the faa safety team so right if we do host the test there is the opportunity for us to add additional information specifically say we know our target audience is FPV pilots, so we're going to put some extra information in there about, you know, reiterate. Maybe the test doesn't talk too much about having a visual observer if you're flying FPV. Maybe we want to add something about that at the end. Yep, or we can, you know, clue you into, you know, like our safety guidelines or, you know, stuff like that to help keep you safe in the air in addition to what the FAA is, so, is saying. I see that as one of the positives of the FPV Freedom mm -hmm. Coalition being an administrator of the test, that we could tailor things, we could get more people to know we exist because it'll be listed on the FAA's website as one of the test administrators. And I'll repeat my question now that Bruce is here. If he can think of any uh, negatives to the FPV Freedom Coalition applying to be one of the test administrators, other than I know you don't think we should be able to have or be forced to do the test at all, but Unfortunately, Congress uh, has tied the FAA's hands in that, and we, somebody has to do it, so should it be us? <laughs> well, Bruce, we know you always fly with your visual observer. Uh... <laughs> Which way is up? There you go. <laughs> Let's see. I wonder how many orgs will require membership before a lot you can't on, it actually second. says that right in the document it, nope. it has to be free and you can't hide it behind a membership requirement yep and we from the beginning have have been saying that we will never hide this behind a paywall so not only can you not but it was never our intent to so is there any liability on our no. part I mean, for in terms of what goes out, start, well, you were in, in giving the test, administering the test, and so somebody's flying under our banner, and and our, uh, we tested them and said they are good to go, and they go out and they create all kinds of havoc. Is there any downside? Is there any liability for us? If there's no downside, well, then of course we need to administer the test. It's a good question, we, and we'll, we can get we'll, out there. We'll dig into it and see if there yeah. are appropriate my, indemnification clauses. My first thought is the test questions are standardized across. Everybody has to um, use the, the same, same set of test the same questions. questions. Right. So, 
Well, that's what I mean. If we were just administering, if it, just a body putting it out there, then it hurts nothing. But if we're responsible for the insurance of it, then yeah. That so, would be something else. like if uh, a local amateur radio club administers the ham radio license test, are they liable for anything if the person who passes that test um, interferes with things? Uh, of course not. I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I asked for. That's correct. <laughs> but that's mine. I'm good. No, it's a good question. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So um, this is another uh, um, outreach the other, from... The other, the other oh, point ahead. we should finally... Uh, is that uh, one of the things we're talking about various organizations, the test is required for all RC modelers as well. So this is not just drones. This is all yes. small UAS. So mm -hmm. it, well, well, everything it be... is UAS now. That's correct. They're all there, 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 There is no model that is just all UAS or SUAS. <laughs> that, that's correct. So yes, yes tech to even kids in their toys. As yeah, far as I understand it, it's just like all the other regulations. There's no lower limit. So if you're flying a 25 gram timey whoop in your backyard, you're supposed to have passed this test before you bring it outside. Oh, of course. Well, and, and you'd be surprised how many hours I have looking up at the sky when my son's or my great grandson's flying his little three inch. You know, making sure nothing falls out of the air. You know, <laughs> gotta watch him. Gotta watch him. <laughs> Great grandson, bless your heart. That's awesome. <laughs> great, great granddaughter was flying at two guys. She had her own quad and was flying a full size uh, transmitter. Fantastic. That when you great. started, when you started really early and you got a ceiling inside the house, they just walked the dog on the ceiling. But after a while, they get pretty good. <laughs> That's great. Okay, All right. So I took so you off got... track there, Josh. I'm sorry. Oh, you're perfectly fine. That's you know. These, these things are flow studies, right? So um, how come Canada gets it right with sub-250, but the USA treats everyone like offenders? That's unquestioned. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's something we've uh, definitely noticed. So uh, uh, FAA announces application period for Lance. So once a year... Uh, Generally, the FAA has opened up uh, ability for companies uh, to come in on the Lance system. So, if you are an aspiring, uh, you know, app developer or something like that, uh, Lance, uh, you can apply to uh, work, uh, basically develop an app and have access to the Lance API. Um, so, this application period opens up in May uh, on May third, and it goes through June fourth. And by uh, October, they will October fifteenth. They will have uh, formal onboarding. So that's when they'll make their decisions uh, regarding that. Uh, this is something that eventually I would love to see us get involved with, but definitely uh, a down the road future thing uh, in terms of developing an app and that kind of thing. Especially uh, if uh, the FAA sort of goes the route of. Um notify and fly where Absolutely. lance has expanded to yeah cover for remote id if you don't have it kind of thing yeah that would be fantastic for us to be able to get in on that uh with that capability um and if if that becomes the case then we'll probably have to sit down and seriously start considering that but um at any rate um this period is open so 
uh, with that said, this would be like your Kitty Hawks, your uh, Air Map, your oh, what's UAS Sidekick, um, those types of apps that uh, you can basically uh, let them know that where you are in terms of asking for clearance. Uh, yeah, if you want to compete with one of those apps, now is your chance. Yep, absolutely. Um, let's see. I thought this was really cool. Uh, this is a great example of yeah, air yeah, map. Bruce, we're not company. exactly a fan Absolutely. of air map right now. Yeah, no, no or ever. not at all. I, I honestly, I think air map kind of hit the wall in in the U.S. Uh, a while back. So definitely interesting that they're trying to push they that. They of course have a uh, have a fire out in their uh, service in their uh, company. Yes. Uh, one of the one of the companies that uh, we are a fan of is Kitty Hawk, and their CEO has been participating in uh, a couple of the uh, tasking groups. Uh, brilliant individual, and if you use a, a Lance app, or if you use Before You Fly, Before You Fly is written by Kitty Hawk, as you may know, and uh, Kitty Hawk continues to make Kitty Hawk available for Lance use, no charge to hobbyists. So thanks to Kitty Hawk. Altitude Angel. Yeah, I have not used their app yet, but uh, I'd like to check that out. Um, all right, so this uh, article is uh, on drone soccer. Drone soccer might be the best way yet to get kids into drones. This is from Drone Life. Um, this is pretty neat. This takes place inside a, a netted uh, area. I think it's uh, 20 by 30. Uh, oh, no, 10 by 20 foot uh indoor mesh arena and basically one of the drones is designated as kind of the striker um, which would be the kind of like the soccer ball and the goal is to get that drone through one of the hoops um, so uh, apparently it started in uh, South Korea and then has kind of worked its way across Europe um, but uh, in order to compete you have to not only just have the drone, but you have to build it and code it. Um, so there's a distinct stem aspect to this. Um, there's no dangerous soldering or other specialized tools needed other than a screwdriver. Um, teachers and students get everything they need for success in the classroom. Uh, it's designed by the U.S. Drone Soccer and produced by iFlight. It's an injected molded uh, exoskeleton that's rugged and durable. Uh, the program uses open source Betaflight, um, same software that you know a lot of uh, of us use if you're flying quads. Um, but pretty cool article. It's uh, a very long article. I definitely a good read, uh, and definitely a great application of uh, drones and STEM kind of collaboration. So that's pretty neat. Um, let's see. Uh, for those of you who are waiting impatiently for the new DJI FPV drone. Uh, there's an article here from Drone DJ with some pictures as well as a new motion controller. And I kind of highlighted something like this, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe yeah, a few meetings ago. Yeah, a few meetings ago from a different company, um, but it utilizes a, a one-handed controller to... Um, fly the, uh, the new DJI FPV drone. Um, so it says, uh, this will allow a pilot with limited stick experience and those good uh, with sticks, but looking for something different to fly a drone in a new intuitive way. 
Think of it as a Wii controller for flying. I would also add to that that this would be a great um, option for somebody who may have a physical disability mm -hmm. to uh, try and uh, get yeah, into. If you've got only use of one hand, or if you like to mm -hmm. hold a drink in your other hand and want to fly one-handed, <laughs> <laughs> or you're driving your car, probably probably not that. <laughs> Let's just not have a hold my beer moment with the motion controller, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is a, a, apparently a leak from, let's see, which appears to have come from GetFPV and then yeah. reposted in a joint. <laughs> I didn't see that. Sorry, GetFPV. Don't want to get you in trouble. Um, so obviously this group is not affiliated. Okay, here's the deets. So in the box, you've got the DJI FPV drone, the FPV remote controller 2, and the DJI FPV goggles V2. Um, the drone ships with one battery, two sets of propellers, a gimbal protector, and a spare top shell or canopy. Um, the goggles come with a battery and a USB-C power cable. Um, obviously, we know what the specs are on the goggles now. Um, for those not yet into flying freestyle or acro mode, you've got the option of flying in normal mode, which it behaves uh, politely, it says. So uh, <laughs> it'll probably have auto leveling and all the good things that uh, DJI is known for with more of their uh, aerial photography drones. So, and we don't have um, long to wait because DJI announced today, I don't know if you're going to post this, but their official announcement is March 2nd, this will be released. So this this morning they announced that. Perfect. Um, let's see. Uh, it also has a mayday button. The drone's controller has a panic button, which will allow you to recover from something hairy and put it into a stable hover. Um, <laughs> this will undoubtedly save countless drones and a lot of swearing, it says. Um, let's see. The separate one-handed motion controller, uh, let's see, point where you want to go, squeeze for tilt, uh, or squeeze for speed, tilt forward or back to pitch, and side to side for roll. Yaw will require you to rotate the controller. This will make freestyle flight far more intuitive for a beginner to grasp, and is really just a super cool idea. All right, so mini challenge. For anybody who gets one of these and gets that motion controller, I want to see somebody power loop with the motion controller. That's my <laughs> challenge. Don't break your stuff, though. Okay. So one other thing I saw in the leaked data that's maybe more interesting to FPVFC is that it has an ADSB input on it, and I, it will show you something in the goggles when it detects an airplane in your area. I don't know if it's going to be really fancy, like tell you where it is, but it's going to alert you in some way. Yep. Sort of like taking what uh, Bruce has created and putting it into your goggles. That's pretty fancy. Um, yeah, it does talk about that. Uh, features AirSense, which picks up ADSB signals from nearby manned aircraft. We'll send an alert to the pilot. Um, that's because many pilots will likely fly solo, even though most regulations require that you have a visual observer. <laughs> At least they put that in there, right? I was like, wait, what? <laughs> All right, so uh, there's that. Um, it's definitely a unique looking aircraft. Um, yeah, uh, we'll know a lot see... more about it soon. Yeah, I don't see anything about oh, just shy of eight hundred grams. I was looking for weight, so yeah. it's a seven ninety six little fella. or something. Yeah, it's a porky little guy. Um, so 
That'd be interesting. All right. Um, I thought this was also. Well, this is coming from uh, also Drone DJ. Uh, United States Air Force Museum holds public drone flying day. Um, so an event set up at the United States Air Force National Museum has seen micro drones racing around a course with the public watching on and getting to fly drones in a simulator and protected cage. The event was set up to allow the public access to some of the cool tr drone technology on offer. I love these kinds of events because it opens up the, you know, it, it, it takes away the mystery of drones for, for people in those communities. It was something that uh, I think definitely having the DRL event here in Phoenix um, definitely helped uh, just due to the countless amounts of people that were there uh, in terms of they a lot of people I've talked to, they're like, yeah, I've never even seen a drone fly like that before. I didn't even know they could do that. So uh, it definitely opens the eyes of, of people's, people in those communities. Um, Racing Corps saw the tiny drones flying in and between C-124s and F-82 aircraft in the museum, uh, making for an interesting race. Uh, the event was fairly small and lasted only a day. The organizers planned to create a larger two-day event with pilots from around the country to give more people the chance to watch and fly drones and hopefully spark a connection for the next generation of drone pilots. And crashing those mini drones into airplanes in the museum didn't like permanently damage them? Well, from the looks of these things, they're like tiny whoops. I mean, come on now. And they're they're indoors, so, so they're safe. Yeah. Um, at any rate, uh, I thought that was really neat. And let me see. What else do I have here? I do have this is uh, a little bit more. How many more must die before we stay away from manned aircraft? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we did have the, uh, you know, that... Uh, um, engine nacelle you know decide to blow apart over colorado and drop parts on people's houses that was that was fun all right um this is a, a airbus prototype that could deploy drones from cargo planes so the uav would launch off the cargo ramp of a turboprop transport craft and play a role in battles of the future so again obviously this is a very military uh, side of things but uh remember that airbus is one of the uh uss uh contenders they're they've dumped mm -hmm. a lot of money into it and they're yep. very interested in being a a uss in the united states so that's this is a company that's absolutely looking to diversify from airframe manufacturer mm -hmm. so uss for for those would be an unmanned service supplier uh they would be the ones operating the potential utms that uh Remote ID, uh, they were looking for a remote ID to uh, kind of help kickstart, essentially. Um, so on December 9th, 2020, Airbus revealed a prototype of an airborne launcher that is designed to carefully release uncrewed aerial vehicles or drones from the loading ramp of a cargo aircraft into the sky while in flight. Um, this launcher is built to go in an Airbus A400M, a four-engine turbopop, prop transport that entered service with France in 2013 and has since been adopted by other nations military. Um, in an announcement video, Airbus showed an aerial target drone um, inside the A400M. Aerial target drones are affordably built, used as a type of robotic clay pigeon for fighter jets and anti-air missiles, so training, training exercise kind of stuff. 
Um, the low cost of target drones has made them useful as a starting point for designing useful expendable military drones that fit the dimensions uh, for launch from the back of a cargo plane. So, you know, it almost feels like somebody watched like a flight test video where they launched a, a drone off of a, a fixed wing aircraft. And they're like, yeah, let's let's scale that up. <laughs> so uh, pretty, pretty interesting uh, uh, technology that's coming about. And I think last but not least, what's we got here? Loss of control. Control of a prototype airspeeder Mark II was lost, resulting in a flyaway and eventual crash. Yeah, oh. if you haven't yet, you should read that whole story. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty true. scary. But it was back in July 2019, I think. Wow. All right. Uh, last but not least, and it's going to be be great electronics. Yeah, they were uh, using R9. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> okay, so a uh, folding drone can drop into inaccessible mines. So Prometheus can boldly go into places forbidden uh, to humans and other robots. Um, it says inspecting old mines is a dangerous business for humans. Mines can be lethal, prone to rockfalls, and filled with noxious gases. Robots can go where humans might suffocate, but even robots can only do so much when mines are inaccessible from the surface. Researchers in the UK, led by Headlight AI, have developed a drone that could cast a light in the darkness. Named Prometheus, this drone can enter a mine through a borehole not, not much larger than a football before unfurling its arms and flying around the void. Once down there, it can use its payload of scanning equipment to map mines where neither humans nor robots can presently go. Um, so really cool, uh, massive use for this in not only inspecting old mines, but in search and rescue in, in the, uh, God forbid, case that uh, somebody, you know, there's a cave in or people are trapped. Uh, you know, I've got, personally in my family, I've got... Uh, family who were coal miners back in Pennsylvania and, and that fear is very real I can tell you uh, for those folks that do that um, let's see I did have one other one that Dave sent me this is uh, an article uh, from it's a press release essentially from Drone Shield um, it's a company that has entered into a new cooperative research and development agreement with the uh, U.S. Department of Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate. Um, that's really, we need all that for Homeland Security? Okay. Uh, the research will involve Drone Shield's multi-censored unmanned aerial system detection and mitigation capabilities with primary focus on Drone Sentry and Drone Sentry C2. Um, the Drone Sentry is a modular system that integrates multiple sensors, both radio frequency sorry, not both, but including radio frequency, radar, uh, EO and IR cameras, um, and acoustic for layered detection, classification, identification, and tracking of UAS drones, uh, tracking of UAS. Um, so this is a kind of multi-layered uh, solution to um, counter UAS. It seems like... And I don't know enough about Drone Shield, but it seems like it's more of a detection and not so much a counter system. Um, I 
might be wrong though. I think they have both, and it's a this is definitely so. Just for those of you who are not aware, um, counter UAS or taking a drone out of the sky illegally is only um, available to uh, the military or uh, agents of the uh, FAA. So they have to be a federal law enforcement uh, or or the FAA to. Uh, to take a drone out of the sky and it is uh, for a civilian to shoot down a drone or take a take a drone out of the sky it is a felony mm-hmm. so but we we try to keep a uh, keep track of uh counter uas it uh, it is regularly a topic uh within the DAC, and it's uh it's a reality for us and we uh, we like to keep uh, keep an eye on what's going on both from a technology as well as a regulation perspective what does the FCC say about counter UAS transmissions? If you've got your ham license, you're good, right? <laughs> well, I, I think that, uh, you know, again, the only people who are able to utilize the technology at this point is going to be the basically agents of, you know, the U.S. government or the FAA. Uh, and that would be like DHS or, you know, FBI, you know, those types of organizations. Um, but, uh, yeah, any, anybody else, uh, jamming is a big no, no. Yep. Text chat. You're right. Um, but, uh, even beyond that, it's, you know, it's a, it's a technology that needs to be, you know, used sparingly and very restricted. Um, right. And the other, the other thing is that there are companies like uh, drone shield or uh, hidden level is another one that they, uh, they do a lot of monitoring. And so they're finding everything in the sky and then the uh, the mitigation or the counter activity can be kinetic, does not have to be a radio frequency uh, spectrum. Mm -hmm. So pretty easy to get around uh, any uh, need or a uh, restriction to jam. And I mean, even further than that is, you know, I would, I mean, I would hate to see a drone taken out either kinetically or electronically or anything like that, because I would, I mean, the same fear of you losing control and coming down and damaging property or God forbid persons, uh, would that, that risk would be inherent in that same technology. So, you know, it really needs to be, you know, a last resort kind of system in my eyes. you know, I don't know how everybody else feels. I will say that, when I'm researching for the shows or, or the town hall, um, you know, the biggest, the most amount of articles that I come across are usually counter UAS. Um, it's a very big industry. It's not small. Um, and there's a lot of money in it. So it came up briefly during today's DAC meeting too. Yeah. And yeah, I'm pretty sure it was uh, Catherine from uh, department of transportation, Alaska. Uh, was it? Her? Yeah, it was definitely somebody talking about uh, airports, or yeah, or or Los Angeles. One of the probably the two. Los Angeles one. Yep. Yep. So, um, but with that, uh, I am done with my side of things. Dan, do you have anything for us? No, I think I covered everything. Just curious if there's more questions from the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we're young. <laughs> yeah, but it's time. <laughs> if you got questions, let's hear them. Let's see. Let me jump over here. Uh, let's see. I'm late to the party. Hi, everybody. Well, yeah, all not right. Much awesome. going on over there on Facebook or YouTube land. 
Yep, uh, we did have Patrick uh, at, uh, talk about the the um, mod study on lethality of shrapnel from explosions in relation to the 250 grams. It's something we've talked about uh, a lot in terms of why 250 grams was selected, uh, not just in the U.S., but you know, pretty much the world over, um, as well as some of the uh, interesting and you know potentially flawed studies that that. Uh, were dictated and, and utilized. Uh, one of the studies, if you're unfamiliar, I think was back from the 1960s when they were researching uh, rockets and debris that falls off of them and the lethality of a of a object falling at terminal velocity and, and that kind of stuff. And it was it's a very old study, and it probably needs to just you know be put to rest. <laughs> um. Anybody else? Any questions, comments, concerns, ideas? Well, we should wish uh, Bruce happy birthday. Oh, it's Bruce's birthday? Uh, this week. Oh. How many Bruce years young, old? Bruce? 68. Oh, wow. Man. So he's got just a couple on me. I, I, I hope to look that good when I'm your age, sir. Oh, shit. Dave's really old. All right, Alex, you got anything for us, sir? Was that a no? I think Not that I can think of. Looking, he's okay. looking for a mic, a mic switch. <laughs> and Dave, do you have any closing comments for us, sir? Uh, just, just we're also working on. Um, I. I Signed up for the ASTM. Someone can look up what it stands for. I think it's American uh, Standards, Standards. And Tables and Measurements or something of that. But it's an international standards organization, even though it has the word American in it. And we're working, uh, I'm helping out as a, in a project management capacity on the F3411, which is the remote ID uh, tracking standard. The idea is if you read the uh, the final rule, you'll see lots of references to consensus standards bodies. And so the idea is the ASTM will produce a standard plus a docs addenda, which will comply, which will the FAA hopefully will, will, the objective is to have the FAA approve it as a means of compliance. And so if I'm building a remote ID standard UAS or a remote ID module, broadcast module, I can just say, yep, I followed what the ASTM said to, and all I need to do is get a declaration of uh, compliance. compliance. Thank you. And uh, that's that's a big deal. That will save manufacturers and developers uh, significant time and money. That uh, standard took several years to create. And so we'll hopefully get the, the target is to get that update uh, out uh, by June. And uh, that's that's a big positive and that will help uh, provide about one year to manufacturers to develop the uh, um, uh, broadcast module. Some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Getting that standard out there quickly is definitely going to help everybody involved. Yep. All right. So. so quiet tonight. I don't know. That, that's odd. Maybe he's just enjoying the show tonight. Oh yeah, Bruce is talking about how the the DAC meeting YouTube stream stopped halfway through, and then they 
started a new YouTube stream, so they lost half their viewers who didn't follow to the next stream. Oh, hey, that's super. I'll have to catch up on this stream. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but... Um... All right. Well, with that, guys, uh, if you've got any questions, comments, feel free to reach out to us on Discord. Uh, feel free to comment on the YouTube video if you guys are over there. And um, let us know uh, how we did and what we do to improve and any kind of uh, information you'd like to see us cover in future town halls. And, yeah. So... Uh, with that, I will wish you all a great night and have a great rest of your week and hopefully a speedy entry into the weekend for y'all. See you, right. Good, Good day.